0: I think when you're a female athlete or a woman athlete, you really do have to be almost the full package in order to be recognized. You can't just be a good athlete. You have to be well-spoken. You have to look a certain way. You have to do everything else to, you know, basically have access to what I think we all know is the bare minimum. And it's frustrating. On top of that, yeah. your entire identity mm-hmm. is as a woman athlete. You don't get to pick your platforms you know, I, I look at my male able bodied counterparts and, you know, if their bit is like, you know, environmental sustainability or it's whatever you want it to be, you can you can pick that and use your platform to have those conversations where I find as women athletes and as, as para-athletes, your whole fight has to be women and equality or disability and equality. And it's one of the most frustrating things because who you are as a person only no matters. You have to use your platform to further that. And it's we do almost have a responsibility to, to do it, which is, frustrating I love my women and sport community because we all lean into that as much as it's not entirely fair that that's where we're kind of having to put our voices and you know your energy and, and overall it can be quite a dehumanizing experience have to have those conversations day in day out but I love that every single one of us is doing it and I love that we are seeing the results firsthand right now the way sport is moving and the way the larger you know women's movement is moving it is unreal and knowing that we're all part of that is honestly one of the most satisfying parts of the job
1: from women's health australia this is uninterrupted a podcast where we share inspiring conversations to help you live a healthier more empowered life i'm editor-in-chief lisa gebielagen Australia's racing greatest of all time, Madison DiRosario, has won an insane number of medals. Six Paralympic Games, ten World Championships and two Commonwealth Games. She also holds the world record for the women's 800 metres and has had a Barbie Shiro doll made of her. But that packed resume isn't the only reason why she is a badass. She's also a fierce feminist who tirelessly advocates for women in sport and brings attention to the double standard experienced by female athletes and the fact that in the current world we live in, that double standard runs even deeper for para-athletes. On this special International Women's Day bonus episode, Madison chats with our executive editor, Kara Byers, about what we can do to help smash the double standard for all.
2: I knew I knew about you and everything before. Like I'd read about you and follow you on Instagram, but it's not until this sounds so creepy. But you know, I have to like research people, and I think like you just don't realize how much people have achieved, and like how young you were when you started. You know, like um, when you competed in the 2008 Beijing Paralympics, you were 14. That is just like mind blowing, and. (laughs) Do you want to talk us through the journey to that point
0: yeah so that was incredibly unexpected I I did not think that I would be at the Beijing Paralympics. I um I really kind of fell in love with wheelchair racing like a few years prior I'd you know been doing it you know as a kid kind of doing sport as you know nothing incredibly serious maybe when I was about 11 ish and Louise Savage, who is initially from Perth, was coming back over for, for a wedding and basically she was told to come to track, check out this girl, like we think maybe there's some potential there and Lou, Lou did, Lou came and, and even to this day, Lou's someone who, despite all of her success as both an athlete and a coach, the amount that she gives back to the development side of our sport is absolutely unreal and, and I'm someone who benefited from that as an 11-year-old and Louise came out to the track to see this girl that she'd never seen before, And I think saw some kind of talent in me that I I did not see at that point. I had no idea what I was doing. And, and she kind of started to give me some kind of guidance, you know, in that space and, and convince my mom to let me come to this big international competition in Sydney, kind of like very early the next year. And my mom was a little bit hesitant at first, like she's got two other daughters. We'd never been away from each other at that point, and and I think they ended up flying both of us over. Like Louise was adamant that I that I come to this event and that I see what it was all about, and and I am so thankful for that because I absolutely fell in love with it, and and not just the the sport, but but the humans involved in it. I, I just was suddenly surrounded by these incredibly strong, driven people and who, who looked like me. And I'd never seen that before in, in any part of my life. And and to sit up close and then to see what kind of a, a community it was, was unreal. Because I remember part of the series is, is a 10k on, on Australia Day. After that race, I think I was maybe like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes behind the first woman. So like miles behind. And I remember the woman that kind of she won it, but she was a world record holder on the track. I'm Chantal she kind of like, we went up like a little walk afterwards and she like, she bought me a milkshake and she was like, you know, I see so much potential in you. And, and that was when I kind of didn't just get to see these athletes, but to kind of like, you know, form relationships and, and be surrounded by people who were seeing something in me that I'd never even considered could possibly be there. And And that's how I really fell in love with the sport. And so Louise and I started working together. Only a couple months after that, I remember she called me and she was like, "Hey, like, would you be interested in working together?" And if Louise Savage asks if you want to be coached by her, you obviously say yes to that immediately. (laughs) So we've been working together for God, I guess, yeah, since two thousand and six, I think two thousand seven, maybe. So for basically my half of my life now, and um, we were kind of working together with that goal being the London Paralympic Games. I would have been eighteen by that yeah. point, and it was quite a realistic goal we thought. And with anything that came in between, you know, COM Games or champs, whatever it may be, and a, yeah. a spot actually opened up on the relay team for Beijing in the four by one hundred. And I was sprinting at the time um, when I went to Beijing. And so we were one of the last teams or last athletes selected. And so how the team works, they kind of select athletes based, like, you know, medal potential. And so they'll select, like, each medal rather than individual athletes necessarily. And so for that event, that was when the four of us kind of went. Two of us were already set to go. They've been to Paralympics multiple times. That's Angie Ballard and and Chrissy Dawes. And and they were set and ready to go. It was myself. I was 14. And a 16-year-old, her name is um, Jemima. And it was both of our first games, we hadn't, we weren't sure we were going to go. And we were, I think it was only like maybe a month out of Beijing that we kind of got that call to say that it was definitely happening. So it all happened very fast after that point. But yeah, Beijing was a whirlwind. It was unexpected, but it was unreal.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. It must have just felt, I mean, that's such a wonderful story, especially all the support you got. That must have just felt, well, I mean, look at what you've achieved. They definitely knew. <laughs> and
0: it's, to look for it's one of my favorite things about our sport. Still, and I'm so glad that you know in the I don't know 14 years that I've been in this sport, the culture has remained the same. It's a community, and it's and it's more than just you know the Australian team supporting the Australian team. There is just international kind of community that we have, and I don't you know it's not something that you see everywhere. It's not something that you see in every single sport, and I I hope that as our sport grows and, and gains profile that we kind of retain that because it's one of my absolute favorite things about what, what we do.
2: That's amazing. Um to so did you always want to be an athlete? No. No, not at all. I, uh, my family was
0: shocked when uh, when this kind of ended up being a career for me. I I'm not competitive at all. I am not the person you want on your team on games night because I'll forget that we're playing to win. <laughs> I am the I'm terrible when it comes to. I have I'm from a very athletic family and we we always played sport growing up. Um both my parents did and me and both my sisters as well and I was always the person you didn't want on your team because I was just there because it was fun and not because I wanted to <laughs> achieve anything from it. And so when I started to fall in love with the sport, it wasn't the winning or the competitive side. I, I just loved the training and the environment and getting to push myself every single day, both physically and mentally. And that's what kind of really drew me to it. And it's actually taken me a long time and I think two games to really work out how I can – line up for a race and want to win and what that looks like for me because it's so different for, for everybody. So no, I definitely did not think that this would be um where I ended up.
2: Oh wow that's awesome and um, also I'm exactly the same especially like games night I'm rubbish and I get really bored so quickly so yes. I just start like tuning out like never ever invite me to a poker night because I'll just be like what what's happening I've actually won a few poker games because I just don't I'm not listening I'm not paying any attention so everyone thinks I'm like bluffing but actually that's no. so good. I just don't care. I love that and I find that painfully relatable. so um can we talk about your disability
0: yeah not um like not the specifics of mine just because it's not super relevant but we can talk about like the impact of disability on things
2: yeah because the thing is like it's a bit like when you you know you must be so sick of being asked about it because we should live in a society where we just don't, like, we don't need to talk about it anymore because it's just we're all treated the same.
0: Yeah, one of the things that we say is you you want your disability to be the least interesting thing about you because that's how it feels to to live in this body. And then it's this kind of disjoint where you feel that way about yourself and then you exist in a world that absolutely does not view it that way. And so it's quite a jarring experience viewing yourself in one particular way, and having the complete opposite kind of be put on you, and so it's it's something that I think you know we're all trying to shift a little bit, but it's bit of a slow process. Uh,
2: because the thing is, yeah, you, you've achieved so much. There's so much more to talk about, just so much more. And talking yeah, yeah. about that, <laughs> you've got like an extraordinary CV. Obviously, you're an amazing athlete. You've broken world records. You've won gold medals, but you've also had a Barbie doll made of you.
0: Yeah, she lives on my bookshelf um, <laughs> over there. That's um, still a bit of a surreal one.
2: Yeah, that must have been crazy when that happened. What happened? Did they, like, call you and say, we want to make a Barbie of you? <laughs> so, oh, my God. So I got a message
0: um, through Instagram from the agency that represents um, Mattel. and Yeah. Um, it was quite vague, and because everything's embargoed, obviously, until everything's agreed upon. So the information you're given is actually quite vague in those initial kind of conversations. And so I remember getting this message, and it was like, a, you know, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically, it was like a brand that you definitely know wants to work with you on a project. <laughs> like, you know, do you, like, like, you know, what's the best contact? And I remember seeing it, and you kind of you do get quite a few messages that look like this you know, and you, you know, don't think too much of, it. I remember just like sending a screenshot to my management and, you know, with a bunch of other stuff and like, you know, whenever you have time, like have a look at this one. And I remember he got back to me very quick on it. And it wasn't even like a, do you want to do this? The phone call was like, you are doing this. And then told me what the proposal was. And it was, it was unreal. I think there's, you know, Obviously, it's hugely flattering. It's incredibly cool to to have a Barbie doll of yourself, and she's so detailed down to like the tattoos, the rings, like all of it. The detail is immaculate, but um the the brand is unreal, and that was one of the most amazing things about the entire experience. Was one of Mattel's big pushes is to kind of create that equality and and to show the 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 pathways and the potential futures for young girls that we don't always see. And that's something that I, one of the biggest things that I want to use my sporting platform for is exactly that. Because when it comes to girls with disabilities, you don't really see a future. And I remember what that felt like growing up. And And when I was growing up, I fell into my sporting career very, very young. And so I never kind of had to go through that phase of finding a casual job when I was in high school. But I remember when my friends were going through that Thinking, if I were to need to do that, what would I do? What are my options? And I couldn't think of a single job where I had seen someone that looked like me in that space. And then you try and think of, well, what would I do? And you think of like, you know, your retail jobs, your hospitality jobs, all of those jobs that my friends were now doing. And none of them were particularly accessible. There's always something that was going to make that incredibly difficult. And when you're, you know, kind of 13, 14, you don't really wanna you don't know how to fight for the space to to take up. You kind of just wanna fit into it. And you weren't able to do that. And I I very much remember what that felt like. And even though I never had to personally experience, I wasn't, you know, looking for for a casual job. And I was so lucky that I was able to see it without it having a hugely negative impact on myself. And and that's what we do to to girls in society as well. We at some point, as as young girls, we we stop believing that everything is possible. We stop seeing our own potential, and then we're surrounded by a community who also doesn't see our potential because we don't see it in in media, or we don't speak about you know successful women in decision making roles and powerful women, and we just don't see it. They're very male dominated fields, and so. Mattel's using their platform to try and change that and they're they're calling it the dream gap which is the gap between you know how girls view themselves versus boys and and what that looks like as you become adults and so that was one of the best things about partnering with Barbie was using being able to use their platforms and amplify my voice and I don't think I've ever worked with someone who I felt so aligned with um as a brand and it was an unreal experience.
2: And that's like something that we want to talk about is this double standard that we all live within as women. But especially in sport, being a female athlete, you must you've spoken out about this before, about the double standard that female athletes experience compared to male. Um, Can you tell us more about this?
0: I think when you're a female athlete or a woman athlete, you really do have to be almost the full package in order to be recognized. You can't just be a good athlete. You have to be well spoken, you have to look a certain way, you have to do everything else to, you know, basically have access to what I think we all know is the bare minimum. And it's frustrating. On top of that, your entire identity mm-hmm. is as a woman athlete. You don't get to pick your platforms you know, I, I look at my male ale-bodied counterparts and, you know, if their bit is like, you know, environmental sustainability or it's whatever you want it to be, you can you can pick that and use your platform to have those conversations where I find as women athletes and as, as para-athletes, your whole fight has to be women and equality or disability and equality. And it's one of the most frustrating things because who you are as a person only matters. You have to use your platform to further that. And it's we do almost have a responsibility to, to do it, which is – frustrating. I love my women and sport community because we all lean into that as much as it's not entirely fair that that's where we're kind of having to put our voices and you know your energy and, and overall it can be quite a dehumanizing experience to Have to have those conversations day in day out but I love that every single one of us is doing it and I love that we are seeing the results firsthand right now. The way sport is moving and the way yeah, the larger, you know, women's movement is moving, it is unreal. And knowing that we're all part of that is honestly one of the most satisfying parts of the job.
2: It's so true. I, I still can't believe that. I can't believe it at my age as a woman. <laughs> but when you said you can't just be a good athlete, that's it's, that's just incensing. It makes
0: me angry. One of the amazing things that I'm finding right now is I feel like in sport and in lots of industries, there is like a pathway to follow and you kind of do that. And then success is at the end of it now. So we're kind of all taught in sport. That's obviously an incredibly um, male driven, you know, straight, white, able-bodied male kind of structure. And I think there was a moment there where we almost run the risk of by working out what works for women. We're almost replicating that, but just like a second version of it. So it's another mold that doesn't fit every single person. And for a little while there, that was kind of what it was looking like. And I feel like in the last couple of years, we've kind of had this new generation of women athletes have come through and they're all doing things so differently. And that's what I love is there's no one way now to be a woman in sport. It's absolutely anything you want to do and to be. Like, I think there's so many strong incredible women just navigating that entirely differently and what that kind of does is open up sport to to every single personality and that's one of the things that I almost felt like I didn't belong in sport I'd been to two Paralympic of the games because I wasn't competitive and I wasn't fiery and I didn't get out there and get angry <clears throat> and I think now if I'd seen Ash Barty when I was 14 like I would have never tried to have been that person but instead, every woman in sport that I saw, it was a very masculine approach because that's what we had to be back then. And we don't anymore. We look at Ash and she's so authentic, she's so gentle and feminine, and her approach is one that works for her. And I I kind of I love now that we're gonna have young girls coming through sport. Who, who see that and and get to be that if that's who they are or they see, you know, strong, loud women as well and that's also beautiful and, and okay. And we, we're kind of seeing all of it. I love that there's no one way that these women right now at the forefront are doing it. It's just everyone's being so authentic and it's amazing to
2: watch. That's awesome. Yeah, this um, new generation coming up are oh, pretty incredible, aren't they? The way they just have taken everything they've been told and really believed it and live it. So they totally they actually believe and behave, yeah. Everybody is the same. Yeah, Absolutely. nobody should be treated any differently. And that sounds so simplistic when you say it like that, but that's exactly what's happening. Like, yeah, like even the Me Too movement when they were just like, Oh no, men should not behave like that, and then everyone was like, Yeah, you're right.
0: Now that you said that out loud, oh my
2: god, you're correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good on them. So talking about what an insanely talented athlete you are, you've won so many medals. Can you just list out how many medals you've won, please? Because I would just like that to go on record.
0: I, um, I genuinely couldn't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the worst answer. Um, I, I actually don't know.
2: Oh what? Wait, Now I'm gonna to have to put it up and pull it up on Google because I'm like, <laughs> like for
0: you be to say,
2: yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to just be like, yeah. <laughs> uh, two Paralympic
0: gold medals, uh two three silvers and a bronze at Paralympic Games.
2: Yeah, two medals, three silver and a bronze. You've also won ten medals, three gold, three silver, and four bronze at the World Para Athletics championships and two gold at the commonwealth games <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> pretty good on <aren't> you <laughs> thank you <laughs> um you also hold world two world records for women's 800 meters
0: I lost the 1500 beginning of lockdown at a race I wasn't at which devastates me I still hold the 800 um but manuela Shah, who is unreal she was silver in that marathon she she decimated that world record on her own in Switzerland um in 2020 so yeah short lived but good
2: yeah but it still happened also I mean COVID doesn't want to demolish anything else okay (laughs) but you're still a a goat you're still a greatest of all time so what's that feel like
0: it's a little bit surreal to be honest I think you know I, I think for myself and and what I've worked at works for me. It's very intrinsic. Like I I train and I race because I love it and I want to see what that looks like. And then you kind of have these moments where you're forced to kind of look at where you fit in to the larger scheme of things. And and records is is one of those. You know I I, I live and I train in my little bubble. I'm surrounded by you know my quite you know small performance team who you know, you kind of immerse yourself in that and to kind of step outside of that and and realise, you know, not not just the records and, and, and medals and what that means, but the impact that that has. And, and sport has this unreal impact on on community. And I think there's certain moments where you're forced to kind of look back and stand back and, and, and see all of that. And I think that's jarring and one of the most beautiful things at the same time about what we're able to do. And so all of that I find... Um, very overwhelming, um, still. But yeah, it's amazing.
2: <laughs> it is amazing. And um, you became the first Australian woman to win a Paralympic marathon at the Tokyo Games. Also incredible. <laughs> um, did you go to the games thinking you'd take that home?
0: No, I didn't. the The marathon was a funny one because there was so much pressure for me to perform on the track in that eight hundred. Both from myself and I think my large team, I it was an event that I don't think I'd been beaten in since maybe 2017, um, and I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to really bring that one home. and And I'd never lined up for a big like a, an event like the Paralympic Games with only one goal, kind of being one result, sort of being one that would um, I would be happy with. And it's quite a Tricky thing to, to process. I remember in the village having all these conversations with my sports psych, who I was lucky enough actually traveled with us. She was a team psych. And so I remember that we had this, you know, 90 minute, two hour conversation a couple days before the 800 about what do I do if I don't win this event? Like, how do you make peace with silver, which is an incredible result? Like, how do you, like, they quite, it was quite a difficult kind of emotional event. And I'd kind of put all my focus into that. And the marathon is a tricky one because we'd not raced them for nearly two years. I'd raced on the end of December of 2019. I'd raced Singapore marathon and then that was it. I hadn't, you know, raced a marathon in, yeah, in, in two years. And so it's hard to, I think, to tell where you're at in that space. And we definitely used the postponement to, to kind of bury ourselves in base work and build that mm-hmm. fitness. And, and I, I knew we'd done that. And I had, you know, I'd seen all the numbers, you know, the VO2 tests, all of it. So, to know we were in very good physical shape, but I was assuming everyone had done the same thing and they had, we would all kind of taken advantage of being able to fall back into base work for an opportunity that was never going to come around again. And so it was kind of hard you, you, you line up and you feel so confident that, 42k, you can you can do and you can do well, but can you do it better than the next person? And and I think I don't think any of us knew there were three of us coming into that save together, and I think there were six of us together. You know, two kilometers out, which is unreal after 40 kilometers at that point. So I think we'd all done the work, and then you know to to win it on the on the last day of the Paralympics was unreal. And I think to, to close up games on that kind of high, and then to be able to immediately kind of see the response coming from back home from Australia was I think what really really made it for me I think after any result on the track you're kind of trying to reset your next track event I think I had six days in a row and you don't really jump on social media you don't call home you kind of just you know immerse yourself in it and then you know you don't really get to experience the emotions that come with it because you're constantly trying to reset for the next thing and so to get to do the marathon and then be done and I remember crossing that finish line and it was like five years of pressure just lifted all at once that I hadn't really realized had been building and to get to have that pressure lift with the best possible result and then feel all that support from back home it was just the most incredible experience I couldn't have asked for a better finish to to Tokyo
2: yeah and that day was that was pretty incredible like it was raining for a start
0: (laughs) it was and we'd done so much work in the heat chamber and everything leading into Tokyo like we'd done years of heat work Active heat, passive heat, just preparing for a very hot marathon to the point that the Olympic marathon was moved to Sapporo because Tokyo was going to be too hot for it. And we fought to keep ours in Tokyo, and I'm I'm very glad we did. And then to line up for it, and it'd be raining on the start line, I was like, we did not plan
2: (laughs) for (laughs) this. You can't make it up, can you? Um, So you won two gold and a bronze at Tokyo. That's massive. How does it feel?
0: it feels a little bit surreal still. It almost, I don't even know what to do with myself. That was, the gold medal at a Paralympics was almost that last thing on the list, nearly. There was, you know, I felt like I'd, I'd done nearly everything else at least once. And, you know, Commonwealth games, world titles, major marathons, world record even. And so that was a thing that I hadn't done. And it did take me four Paralympic games to, to finally do it, and so it almost feels like there is this enormous pressure that is lifted. There is something about you know having finally done something that you know. I remember being at my first trumpet Games in Beijing, and I was obviously not in a position to find myself onto a podium for an individual event. But seeing you know the athletes that were doing it, and and Chantal who I mentioned earlier, after one of our races. She, want, she retired after Beijing on like five gold medals and I think three World Records <laughs> or something unreal. She was just this amazing, amazing woman. And after, I remember she was coming back from um, one of her medal ceremonies. And so I can't remember which gold medal she was just winning. And to get back to the Canadian tent, um, you had to walk by the Australian tent along the warm-up track. And, and I remember her walking past our tent, seeing me, doubling back and handing me the flowers that she'd just been handed on the podium and telling me these are for you until you win your own. And to kind of then be able to do that 4 paralympic games later, it was something that you you think about, you know, almost every day. And it's, you know, not even the most active ways. It's never like I'm doing this to do this, but you just know that that is like the highest possible goal. And it's there and you want it and you want it so much, not for the medal because of who you know you're going to have to become in order to do it. And so to finally do it and then to do it twice and I think to be able to be so proud of, of myself and my team and, and what we've been able to put together, not just the last Paralympic Cycle, but since I was 14, is, is unreal. And there's something about that. It's almost like there's a bit of closure to that. And I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. I will, I will be racing in Paris. But, um, but yeah, there's something really, mm. I think, almost comforting about it.
2: Yeah, because if you do it twice, then you're definitely that person.
0: And I'm able to talk myself out of nearly anything. I remember winning my first gold title, and I'm like, maybe it was a fluke. And it wasn't until I did it a second time that I was like, oh no, like no, I can do this. And so it's, it's ridiculous. And so to yeah, to do it twice at a games, and yeah, absolutely amazing.
2: Amazing. Um, so you covered a lot of distance at those games. How did you keep going?
0: We, we knew how intense that program was going to be leading into it. We got the program over a year out because it didn't change from when the games were meant to be in 2020. And so mm-hmm. we, we knew how intense that track program was. And so we kind of built into it every single detail. And that included what hours we were going to put aside every single day for Louise and I to work out our next race plan, where it actually fits in. And, and even with my psych, we kind of planned if this is a bad race, this is your process, like, and we kind of call it a grieving process, which feels very dramatic for a sporting event. But it's kind of you put so much into it, and if you do basically get your heart broken out there on the track, like, how do you actually deal with that in a way that doesn't impact your next event? And so we put together all this. So everything was quite meticulous and very deliberate how we kind of approached that. And we kind of had you know meal times blocked in, um, times when we fought really hard to you know try and have quite a, a small number of us in the apartment that we were in to kind of create just like a more calm environment. And, you know, there was a lot of planning that that went into that. And so when it came time to actually do it, it almost kind of just flowed. Like it was incredibly stressful and I was an emotional roller coaster the entire time. I was very up and down. Um, but even with that, I had a support network in place in the village. I had my coach. I had, you know, some amazing mm. teammates. My psych was there and, you know, all the rest. And so it was we, we knew how intense it was going to be and my coach has obviously been to Sonia Crowell games and, and as, as an athlete and as a coach and she understands it so she's so familiar with that process that when it comes to putting a plan together she's the best possible person I can have in my corner because she understands it just innately and so yeah it was it was very intense but um but yeah we, we definitely planned for it.
2: And so what did you do when you got home because you've got that support network when you are at the games was it said come down when you get back
0: an enormous come down and we all spent it in quarantine as well so we came home oh wow yes it. yeah and I was very nervous about that um because every parent the games that I had been to, to that point I've come home a little bit heartbroken with the result and I think like the bar is so high it's easier to come home devastated than happy with how it went and I was very nervous about having to do that and and then being you know, alone for that time. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful that, you know, I was, I'm very proud of, of how everything went, but it was, it was strange. It was kind of went from this incredibly intense, you know, 10 days to back and I, I quarantined at home. So, you know, coming home to, you know, almost like just normal life again mm-hmm. was kind of dark, but also amazing. I think it kind of allowed time to, to really process everything and, and because all my teammates were also in quarantine, I think we spent like, you know, most of the day kind of like on calls on FaceTime, like still staying very connected throughout that, which was Yeah, that's you know, good. Amazing. But, um, but yeah, it was almost nice to kind of have like a quiet two weeks to really just kind of sit with it.
2: Yeah, your brain must have been like, whoa, <laughs> what a gear change.
0: A little bit, yeah.
2: <laughs> so I'm um, just talking about your training for a moment. Um, what does your training regime look like? Um,
0: it depends on what kind of a, um, what kind of work we do, doing, kind of a block we're in, but generally we'll do, um, so we'll do six days a week. We always have, um, one full day off, um, and that, and a lot of that's for physical recovery, but it's a little bit more for the mental aspect of having a whole day of just, you know, reset. Um, but the actual training, I do six to seven sessions in the race chair, and then two to three sessions in the gym. And so the race chair sessions will, I don't do too much work on the track, but some will be on the track. Um, we do a lot of work out on the road. So I'll train with a cyclist in the bike lanes um, on the road. We have this amazing treadmill that we train on at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. And you're basically able to program it to do whatever it is you need, elevation, speed, everything. Oh, wow. And so when we were training for Boston Marathon a few years ago, I would not done it before. And there is 10K of rolling hills from, like, 25 to 35K. And we programmed oh. that into the – yeah, we programmed that into the treadmill. And so I was able to familiarize myself with so – the time I went and, and over to Boston and raced, I'd never seen the course before, but it was almost like I was familiar with this the trickiest part of it. And so we use that a lot. And on top of that, we use um, – an altitude chamber so heat and altitude um and we'll put like the rollers which are a stationary training tool in there and we'll do a lot of work especially leading into Tokyo in the heat and then my gym sessions yeah most of them are quite heavy but they're just to kind of complement the chair sessions to make me as available and as strong as possible to be able to do everything I need to do in the race chair and my team works together very closely so my my you know louise my water racing coach will talk to my ssc coach and the physiologist and the dietitian and they kind of bring together a program you know very cohesively that i'm able to kind of just move through which is yeah it's an unreal team
2: yeah wow it sounds like really cool like yeah And um, so is there anything that you absolutely hate that you've just had to make peace with oh i
0: hate being bored in sessions so if it's like an easy role or like a threshold when you just want to like hold a pace and you know like kind of heart rate at a certain point where it's not that hard but it's you know you're working I get so frustrated to the point that we had to start doing them on the treadmill so I couldn't like push it a little bit more so my physiologist can control the speed so I would do like, you know eight to twelve minute efforts and I just want to kind of go as hard as I can um, and whereas on the treadmill, he can make, he chooses the speed, and I get absolutely no say in it. So I, yeah, I struggle with getting very bored through um, some of our sessions if they're repetitive or if I've done them a lot of times or if they're just one of those maintenance sessions. So that's my, and also I used to really dislike the gym. So now that my SEC coaches have basically turned them into just like gossip sessions to, I think, keep me. <laughs> entertained while we go through the process of the of the gym program but um but no i have an amazing team who i think anything that i struggle with like they more than make up for
2: oh that's great um so we've gone through your physical training regime but how do you prepare your mind
0: big process as well and also very deliberate so my first few Paralympic games there wasn't that kind of support around mental health and mental and and your mental readiness that we now have and so we kind of just go in blind and you kind of go in and you're so stressed I remember going you know in the London 2012 games and being like physically sick every day because I was so stressed and so nervous um and that was for a few World championships after that as well and that was kind of what I thought stress felt like and then there was this more we started to shine a bright light on like you know the actual mental well being of athletes and it was brought to my attention that's not how you should feel going into a pair of the games and so we we've done a lot of work in that space and I work with um with a sports psych and often it'll just be myself and her and we're kind of just working through you know whatever it needs to be and then every couple weeks we get my coach in the room as well and we kind of have a big discussion around you know how Louise can support me and how I can support her and how do we be a good team because when it comes down to it it's kind of just her and I out there up until I go into call and then once I'm in call it's all me and so you know that's almost the most important relationship in my life and so we do a lot of work and how do you maintain that trust and and all of that and that's I think been a real game changer for me is having someone who I, I trust in my career and my and my overall wellness more than nearly anybody else in my corner and that's that's been huge. With um, the last two years and not being able to race, again, the three of us and my coach, my sports like and I in a room, we basically just rewatched every piece of race footage we could get our hands on. Not just my races, but some of Louise's races from like 2000 and and uh-huh. men's races and, and everything we could find. And we kind of tried different ways of putting myself in that position and trying to get your head back into race mode when you've been out of it for so long. And our, our kind of main method was Louisa watched the race beforehand. She would pick 15 seconds to watch and then pause. And then basically she's say, like, you're that athlete. They're in this situation right now. What do you do? And so that kind of forced you to think as if you're in a race again and, and try and get yourself back in that headspace. And so we did a lot of work around that um, leading into, into games. We did. Yeah of work around that kind of mental space
2: wow you're so clear that's what really strikes me about you like you're so clear about what you need to do how to do it and then you've got a really amazing team which is no mean feat you know a lot of people have to go through quite a lot of people to get that kind of support that's amazing yeah. also louise sounds incredible
0: she's amazing i really lucked out with this one
2: and <laughs> um, so you've got another big year commonwealth games
0: yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Com Games, I've only ever been to one. I, I've managed to miss out, you know, on, on Delhi and the Glasgow Games. So my first Games is actually on the, my first Com Games is actually on the Gold Coast. And it's kind of a cool vibe. We obviously don't get to be in that space with, with a mixed team um, very often. And I think one of the cool things is I see my air body counterparts training in the same gym I train in, training on the same track, and you're kind of, you're there for the journey and you never get to be there for the very end part. Whereas in the comp games here, you do. And that's, I think, one of the all-time highlights is that kind of environment you create every day. You kind of get to see it all happen. And, and I, I absolutely love that part of, of the Commonwealth Games. And we'll be heading over there for the same events we're doing the Gold Coast, so a 1500 and a marathon. Um, but yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that one.
2: Yeah, no, I'm excited too. Can't wait to watch you. So um, <laughs> earlier we talked about... the the double standard um between female and, and male athletes and what's your advice to young woman athletes who are starting out
0: um work out what works for you and i think to work out what works for you you have to work out why it is that you're doing it in the first place and i that takes usually i think we find ourselves midway through a career or midway through before we're like and you're faced with some kind of challenge before you start to really reassess everything. And I almost feel like my career restarted midway through when I did that. I wish I had done it earlier. And it's why are you actually putting yourself in that position? I think sport and, and any career, it takes a lot of sacrifice. And we're comfortable with that and we choose to do that. And that's that's fine. But it gets Fucking hard at times and you have to really want to be in that space to do it and when it comes down to it in those moments someone else's reasons uh, are never going to be enough they're not going to get you through it only yours will and if you know what those reasons are and you're choosing to do it those kind of dark periods those low periods those really challenging times are so much more manageable I think having that faith and that trust in in yourself is, is paramount and it, it took me nearly stepping away from the sport to really discover kind of that side of things. And, and I truly wish I'd done it earlier, um, but that would be yet yeah, what I would say to, to a younger a younger woman athlete, or to a, anyone coming to any sport is work out why you're doing it, what works for you and and be selfish about it. You know, I think that's really, really important in those early stages.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um... And for, you know, those of us who are on the sidelines, how can we help to smash this double standard down? I think a lot of it,
0: the simplest way that we can all do is just in the language that we use and the way we talk about it around not just our young girls but around all of our young people because language really shapes how we feel about so many things. And, and if we look at, you know, the we say the AFLW and the AFL and right now we're trying to shift that. So if we're going to say AFLW, we need to all say AFLM. And there is so much pushback from men about this at the audacity of having to categorize themselves, um, which is hilarious. Um, but that language God. is so important. I know, right? But that language is really, really important. And I find this around, you know, we kind of say in, in the women's sport movement that when we stop saying women's sport, we'll know we've achieved it. We're at a point when we don't need to clarify or feel the need to, that's when we've actually achieved something. And and the language is is important. If we're raising young people to view things in that light, then that's going to you know, change the way you then interact and, and normalising those kinds of things. So I think language is one of the easiest ways that all of us, Can help to kind of shift that narrative, and and it's something that's so accessible. And and the the flip side of that is using the incorrect language isn't neutral. It does do damage, and so that's what's important here. It's not just oh, let's do better. It's we need to stop doing harm to to our girls and the way they view themselves. It's. There, there is no neutral here and the correct side of this is the incorrect side of this. And I think we all need to make sure we're doing everything in our power to, to reshape that narrative and create a community that values our women as equal to
2: our men. That's amazing because I think, you know, a lot of us don't realize that it's as simple as changing our language and we can do it. I mean, brains are pretty slow, aren't they? But they catch on in the end.
0: <laughs> and, and we can make mistakes too, you know, like it's okay. Like we're, we're so used to speaking a certain way that, you know, it's, it's so normal to, to get it wrong and correct yourself. And, but I remember seeing one of my events at the Commonwealth Games. And I think it was described as like the T-54 wheelchair para-athletics marathon or something, which is like three ways of saying this person has a disability. And I was like, bro, pick one. Like, if you need to say it, that's fine. Like T-54 marathon is a wheelchair marathon. So it's the wheelchair marathon. Like there is You know, if you want to say it, if it's it's important to the conversation, then add it by all means. If you're differentiating between the wheelchair marathon, the running marathon, then it needs to be, you know, said and and do that. But it was such a a hang up that it had to put every single way of of, of communicating that this isn't the running marathon. And I found found that so bizarre. But that's what what we do with language. And and it's so important that that we begin to
1: shift that.
2: Yeah, I agree 100% actually. Um, Mm. So what's your secret to following your passion?
1: Um, You know,
0: I actually give myself an out every single day and I think that forces you to choose to do it. And I think none of us want to be forced to do anything. And even if we're the ones forcing ourselves, you're still almost there involuntarily. And that's something that I almost refuse to do. There There are moments when you have to force yourself to keep going. And for me, that's like, you know, the last 5K of a marathon. It's those really intense, challenging moments where you would do anything to be done. I don't want to feel like that, how I feel in the last 5K of a marathon, getting up to train in the morning. I don't want to be forcing myself to do anything. And so if, I'm, if I wake up and I'm feeling average and you have to drag yourself out of bed to get to training, I give myself a sec and basically ask myself, like, "Do you actually want to go and do this?" And you kind of have that conversation with yourself. And if my and every single time, your answer is going to come back yes, because the reality is you do, and you've put yourself in that position because you want to be there. And this kind of goes back to reminding yourself of your own why, and your own reasons, and why you're doing it this way. And so then, when you do turn up to to training, to your job, to whatever. It is. You're there on your own terms and because you want to be. And I, I feel like you're able to give more of yourself if you're choosing to be there. I think you can force yourself into a situation. I don't believe that you're able to give everything when you're a little bit resentful of being there in the first place. Because if you choose to put yourself there, I think you're able to really pour all of yourself into that. And so that's mine. And yeah, it's I honestly give myself the option of saying no every single morning.
2: I'm going to adopt that. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into our quicker, more quick fire questions. So if you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be?
0: No advice. She's going to make so many mistakes and she needs to make every single one of them. Amazing. She can struggle. She'll make it work.
2: <laughs> Where do you feel happiest and like yourself?
0: Around really specific people. And that's. The last couple of years, I feel like that's become such a priority to me. I've noticed like, when do I feel really good? It's always around people that bring that out of me. And as someone who's like fiercely independent, I didn't love this realisation. It was actually really upsetting, but it's true. And so, yeah, I, I'm so um, uh, deliberate with who I spend a lot of time with. And I think that's really, really important.
2: If you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go and why?
0: Oh, right now, home to Perth. I've not been home to my family in a couple of years. Um so right now, yes, it would be um home to Perth.
2: Fortress WA, hey. Yes.
0: <laughs> the Republic um, of Western Australia. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what did you learn about yourself this past year?
0: So much. Um I think that I'm I'm very proud of myself, I think is is the main one. And that is a hard thing, I think, for us as people to like actually tell ourselves I think we're very good at criticizing ourselves but I think yeah I one of my big things with my side was speaking more positively about you know myself and how you would a friend almost and the impact that has is is unreal
2: what's something you wish more people knew about you
0: Um, that I wasn't good at sport or competitive growing up. That I think that I that I grew up in this sport feeling like I didn't belong in it. And I think that's less important about for people to know about me, but to know that that doesn't determine how successful you can be in, in anything. I think we all feel so out of place, and that even someone who's able to achieve what they want to achieve in in their chosen industry you feel like an imposter so much and that's so normal and also it's so possible to work through.
2: So you've achieved a lot and I want to put that in bold, (laughs) underlined and all capitals, but what are you most proud of?
0: I'm really proud of who I've had to become, I think, to achieve all of it. I'm also really proud of This is just myself, but it's my entire family, is is the way we do use the platforms that sport affords us. I think, you know, every single one of them, and I'm so proud to be one of them, you you know, recognises the impact they have. You know, the Paralympics is the largest platform afforded to people with disabilities, and I don't think any of us take that lightly. And I'm I'm so proud of of the impact that this team has been able to have for the last, yeah,
2: ten years. What's the one thing you're most excited about in
0: 2022? Ooh. I mean, I'm excited to get back out and race marathons. That's unreal. I'm excited to see how Tokyo has shifted the permanent movement here in Australia. The, the coverage that we had was unreal. And so I think to be able to see that. I raced on last week out on the roads. It's the first time racing in Australia in, in a year. And the crowds were amazing, the energy was amazing, and it was like a direct kind of result of, of that like sh- that, that shift that we've had the here, movement here in Australia. And so I'm excited to, to see how all of that continues to look. Also excited to see my family. Um, but yeah, those things
2: texting or talking? Talking. First celebrity crush.
0: Okay, so the Celebrity is a cartoon character, but do you know Eris from Sinbad? She's the goddess of chaos.
2: (laughs) Don't worry, I've I've had people say SpongeBob before, so. (laughs) At least she's hot. Okay, at least Eris is hot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Last song you downloaded.
0: Oh, so I listened to this song called Station by Lapsley on loop through Tokyo, and it's probably still my most recent one.
2: Oh, amazing. Veggie mite or jam? Jam. Which flavor?
0: Like a mixed berry jam.
2: Oh, that's kind of fancy, isn't it? It's like my go-to um,
0: with like cashew butter on rice cakes. It's go-to
2: Okay, thanks. That's what I'm going to have this afternoon. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> what would your superpower be?
0: Mind control.
2: Oh, kind of sinister.
0: <laughs> I know. My sisters and I just had this conversation. We picked each other's and that was theirs for me.
1: So I'm committed to it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then last one. What's your favorite day of the week? Saturdays are my day
1: off. So
0: I'm gonna have to go with that.
2: Oh, nice one. Um, so that's all the questions I had to
1: ask you. You've been amazing.
0: <laughs> no, thank you. You made it very easy.
1: Thank you to Madison and Kara for that great chat. And thank you for listening to this special International Women's Day bonus episode. This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted by Kara Byers and produced by me, Lisa Gebelaggin. If you'd love more from us, pick up a copy of the latest issue of Women's Health Australia with Jess Fox on the cover. Visit us at womenshealth.com.au or follow us on Instagram at womenshealthaus. Until next time.